We would turn now to the Word of God together and read from the Gospel according to Luke in chapter 24. Records as it does the resurrection of Jesus and some of the visits that he made the very night that he rose again. We're going to be considering the visit of Jesus to the two Emmaus travelers. And the narrative of that is found only here in Luke, and beginning at verse 13 through verse 35, we'll we'll speak to that and of that, the glorious meeting of Jesus. They even had lunch with him, or dinner, as we would say, and their hearts burned as a result of their meeting with him. Luke 24, verse 13, now behold, two of them of the disciples, that is, were that same day, uh, they were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. That would be the the death, the, the trials, and the death of Jesus. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so then they have a third traveler in their party of travelers, and they don't recognize Jesus. Their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Amazing, they call him the only stranger in Jerusalem. You could make a sermon out of that, or 20. The only stranger in Jerusalem. Hmm. And he said to them, what things? So they said to them, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, O fools or foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all, or just all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, that is, suffer first, then enter glory that way? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And you know, that's really not the main reason they wanted him to abide with them. They, they were loving this man, full of wisdom. And they gave that as an excuse. Oh, it's just, it's too late. Abide with us. And he went in then to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with him that he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. 
And he vanished, just like that, children, just like that. He vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Thus far we read this wonderful narrative of this wonderful little visit with Jesus and two of his disciples. Long ago, we, it's very hard for us to realize this, but the cross of Jesus Christ was near to a stumbling block for his disciples, not only for the twelve, but those who were of the larger band of disciples who were still hanging on in faith that Jesus was the Savior. Now that the cross is a stumbling block is something we know according to the scriptures that says the cross is a stumbling block to all who receive not the gospel, to unbelievers, those who don't want Jesus, they don't want to hear of their sins and his salvation um, uh, um, uh, that's provided on the cross. So they stumble over the cross. That is, they're killed by it. It's a cross of judgment to all of those who do not believe. The early disciples, again I say, with some reservation about this, they were nigh unto not believing the cross, I would say, in, that, in those days after he died. Because if Jesus is dead, then everything he'd said about his cross couldn't be true. And now that he's dead, now that he'd submitted himself to this death, how could it be that he would ever rise again? Maybe they were remembering that he had somewhat, but they were not certainly believing that he had said, I'm going to rise again the third day. They were bewildered. That's why Jesus makes these appearances over 40 days after he's risen from the dead. There are no less than 10 of them that are recorded for us in the New Testament, in the Gospels. No less than 10 appearances. And the book of Acts calls them infallible proofs or confirmations to the disciples that Jesus, had been, who had been dead, was now risen. We want to consider today Jesus' visit to the two men, as we call them, who are traveling on the way to Emmaus. And one of the peculiar things, the outstanding things about this visit to these men was that these men were in need of joy and understanding and joy through the understanding of the resurrection, for they were very sad. And Jesus even notes that as he goes up to them, they didn't know him, and he says, what kind of conversation is this? Verse 17, that you have with one another as you walk and are sad. They not only were sad, but they looked sad. And of course, Jesus, who knows the heart, could see their sad hearts. 
But there's something about these men so that you could just tell sadness was all about them. The sadness of gloom, of doom, and of despair. So Jesus comes to these men, and he would come to us today too, beloved. He can do that, you know. He's not with us personally. He's not with us physically. He's in heaven. But as he speaks the word from the word, from yours truly, a servant of the word, he does visit us. And he's promised to be with us always in the mission of the ages of discipling the nations and to be with us so that we can believe him. And I want to bring this word to the two men of the Emmaus travelers, especially so that all of our sadness turns to joy. All of our confusion turns to wisdom. All of our unbelief turns to faith. We ready to hear that? There were two men traveling on the way to Emmaus, beloved. Well, we're travelers too, traveling on the way to heaven. And sometimes along the way, we hardly know where we're going. This word is for you and for me. So first of all, let's consider the two who needed appearing to. Two fools, as Jesus called them, and slow of heart to believe. There were two. The name of one is given, Cleopas, and the name of the others withheld. That's you. They were very sad, and Jesus says that seemed to be the one thing that characterized them and their conversation. They were sad, and they were talking with one another, and their conversation wasn't helping them in their sadness. And they were very, very sad. It was a conversation, in fact, of a certain kind that would promote sadness. What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? It wasn't just the content of the conversation, but the manner in which they were speaking and the conclusions they were making. We can do that too sometimes. As husbands and wives, for example, friends traveling or friends working, uh, husband and wife, and you can have friends and I can have friends, and you can get in conversations that aren't helpful for your joy in the Lord. And in fact, as my wife and I say, if one of us has a shovel and we're digging, and we're digging a hole into gloom or into bad thoughts, uh, make sure the other doesn't have the shovel so that you can dig the other one out, and, and you're not digging this hole. And it's this way that friends who are sad together can have of promoting sadness. You, you know what I'm talking about. And for this, it was, it was very, very concerning to Jesus because it was resultant in their wandering. Their wondering, and he knew what they were wondering about. They're wondering about the significance of his death but then in their apparent aimlessness, we're not told why they're going to Emmaus. They're just going there. Remember Simon Peter, he was so unbelieving in the risen Savior, he said to the disciples once, I don't know about you, but I'm going fishing again. Remember Peter was a fisherman called to be a disciple of Jesus full time. And they said, now I'm going back to what I know best and what I can understand, how to catch a fish or Two fish. So 
These people, these men on the road to Emmaus, apparently had time for themselves and not, were not thinking of work, but they were, say, on a vacation. We need a break from all of this Jerusalem stuff, and, and maybe they were saying even all of this discipleship stuff, which we had hoped was going to be a following of a real leader and a redeemer of Israel. We'd hoped in that, but now all seems hopeless. So they had a heart problem, too, as we'll see in a bit, but they were definitely not being directed by the cross and the significance of that. Certainly, though they should have believed, because Jesus had said so, and though they should have believed, because they heard of the women who had said so, because the angels said so, that Jesus is risen. They should have believed this. There is no excuse for this, even though it's not the age of the Holy Spirit poured out. I know that. But there is some accountability here for their aimlessness and their sadness, as if Jesus didn't die for sins and rise again. So they have a directional system problem, I would say. We say we need GPSs to get places. Well, we also need CPSs, cross-positioning systems, so that the truth of the cross directs us in our travels and directs you to young people and young children in your journey in life, your young steps, your young legs, and directs you to the right friends companions on the journey to heaven. These people were all messed up. They were. And the principal reason is theological confusion. And I say this, that their principal problem was theological because Jesus, to address their sadness and their aimlessness, speaks to them of the central message of the Bible, calling them fools and then saying, ought not Christ to have suffered and then entered to glory and expounds all the scriptures about that. They were confused theologically, that is, with regard to truth, the truth of the Bible, the truth of God in the Bible, the truth of the Christ in the Bible, the truth of sin and of grace, and especially the necessity of Jesus dying for sin and then his rising again to be received into glory. So that's their their problem. They were stumbling over the central truth of the Bible as so many do today. So many who come out of seminaries, so-called, that are seedbeds of lies and of an improper focus so that it's as if for many in the liberal seminaries, the central message is maybe how we ought to do good to one another. And beloved, that's not the central message of the Bible. If it is, you're going to be aimless. You're going to be wandering and you're not going to be giving glory to God and your whole 
cross-positioning system is askew and the central message is not what we can do good to others, but it's what God has done to us. It is done, it is finished, and he is risen for us. That's the central message, and what we're supposed to do to others flows from it. But Jesus didn't even talk about that, didn't he? He talked about the Christ had to suffer, the Christ had to rise, and then into glory. He wasn't talking about how to be a good neighbor even, even though that's implied what love he had for us, and what love he's having now for those sad fools and for you and for me as he speaks to us. So there's, the problem is theology. As I always say here, the answer to all our problems is theology. And then the second answer is theology. And the third is theology. That's where the principle the principal solution to our problems. But they had a wrong source, you see, for their theology too. It wasn't the Bible. They were going on their feelings. They were going and hearing the shouts of the hoi polloi, the masses of Jews and Gentiles, crucify him, mocking him. That's what they were hearing and going along with. Easy to go along with the crowd. They were following the religious leaders who said he has to die. He's blasphemed God, and he said he's the son of God. And he said, in three days, I'm going to raise the temp- destroy the temple and then raise it up again. This guy is a lunatic. He's a heretic. He must die, as we often do or can do as well, be guided by what people say. What CNN says or Fox News says even. And have our theology told us by what's popular to believe. Should be the Bible, shouldn't it? The problem with these Emmaus travelers is they only had half the Bible. What half do you think that was? Children? What do you, sometimes I say half the Bible is just the Old Testament. That's all they had. But I'm meaning they had the top half of the Bible. That's it. They just had the surface. A literal Israel. A literal kingdom. The surface. They, they had this understanding taught by the blind leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, that Jesus was decidedly Jewish. Even He was Jew, a Jew, of course. And so his kingdom is going to be a restoration of David's or the the kingdom of Solomon, and it's going to be all political, and we're going to have this literal peace and this power to overcome and crush the Roman army. They didn't understand the meaning of it. And again, like so many today, and we can do that, and we do our devotions, and there it is, we're done, and we move on in the day. But there's deep things in the Bible truth is deep. If it wasn't, we should go home. If it wasn't more than we could say is history that happened, if it was only that, and that's enough, that, that's good for sure. Not, not enough, but it, it's, that's where you start. This is history. But if it had no 
gospel meaning, the history, the real history, and there's no gospel. And if there weren't in the Old Testament pictures of the gospel, we would say that the Old Testament's not the gospel, just the new. But it is the gospel, beloved. And they should have known that. And that's why Jesus expounds to them the scriptures that they had from Genesis to Malachi, as we'll see presently. So that was their first problem, theological. Their second was cardiological. What's that? A heart problem. They were fools, Jesus says, and slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. They had a heart problem. Theirs was slowness of heart, dullness of heart, and a resistance to truth. That was the problem. It is the problem of all people. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not just that the atheists can't believe in God. They won't believe in God. Where there's a will to resist, there's a way to resist. And sadly, that's all the sinner has, a will to resist. And his way is deny the word of God. Yea, hath God said, ha, 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 look what I say. So much better for you. So much better for God because I could make it that Sin happened out of God's control. That's a better word than the Bible's word that says God is king, even over sin, and still is good. But see, in our understanding, in our resistance to truth, we want to just cut away all the hard parts, like Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He cuts away all the miracles. Fools indeed they were, proud, hoping not in God and his Messiah. Well, now, the second point is that Jesus comes to these sad fools anyway. Not something. Remember, there were two, a man and a woman in the garden that Jesus came to. The rest is the history of redemption. Jesus, or God, had to come to Adam and Eve in the garden. There they are hiding, and they are hiding behind their fig leaves, and then they think a second line of defense, that'll be the trees, and then their excuses, and they hide, and they hide, and they hide, and, and Emmaus travelers here are approached then by Jesus, and that's grace. When Jesus approaches and would help, that's first grace. Because he loves them. And he would take them out of their sadness and out of their ignorance. And here's what he does. He expounds the scriptures. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Note, he speaks of himself. And for the next verse says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? Of anyone else, we'd say, wow, that's a proud fellow. Look at what the what this book says about me. There I am. There I am. I'm right there. And look, I'm over here too. 
you would say that about anyone else, you'd say, what's an egocentric person that is? The wonder of Jesus is, he's God-centric. And when he speaks of himself, he speaks of his Father. And when he speaks of his Father, he's giving glory to God. And God would speak of himself. And God just happens to have spoken of himself in the Word. The great communicator is God through the Word, which is the great communication, Jesus. And so, it is not sacrilegious or egotistical, but heavenly and divine for Jesus to say, here's what the scriptures say about me. And this is how we must read our Bibles and learn from our Bibles. If we don't find Jesus, you haven't dug, you haven't read, you haven't understood. Only the top half you've maybe read, not the bottom half and all the depths. You find Jesus. And men, as you lead the household in your devotions, or you lead yourself, if you're single, find Jesus and don't get up from the table or your closet until you find him there in the Bible. And he speaks to you there and he finds you there. That is, you as someone who ought to hear him. And then, of course, the details. He speaks of the suffering and he, he would expound the scriptures from Moses and all the prophets of the things of his suffering and his entering into glory. That's amazing. And we know all of these things in the Bible, and we speak of them all the time here. The Old Testament scriptures, that looking ahead half of the Bible, it speaks there of the seed of the woman in Genesis already who would be bruised by the seed of the serpent and yet who would crush the serpent's head. There's this bruising, this suffering, but then there's this triumph. Then you have the types and the shadows, as we call them, of the old covenant. And a temple stood for Jesus. And the crucified or the, 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 the sacrificed animals pictured Jesus. The Exodus Passover lamb was a picture of the Lamb of God, whom Paul says is Jesus Christ, our Passover, in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 5. And all of the prophets and the priests and the kings and their sufferings and then in their glories foreshadowed Jesus, of course. And then you have Isaiah, the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy, not only of his suffering, but also of his glory, for it speaks there of this man who is... Um, wounded for our transgressions and who is one who is uh, sees the travail of his soul. There you have it. And notice how Jesus in Luke 24 expounded to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And they wasn't saying there, there are certain things that don't speak of me. I'm only speaking on all those things that do. Rather, the idea is that he's speaking and unfolding the truth of the scriptures because they all speak of himself. And Jesus would say that also in John 5, 39. He's speaking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures. In them you, have, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, he says. These scriptures that you have and of which you're the guardians as the Jews... 
the history, the prophecies, the promises are all of me. And 1 Peter 1 reminds us too in verse 11 that when the Old Testament authors were, or, or writers were writing the Bible, it was the Spirit of Christ who, who spoke through them. So Jesus speaks of these things. And there's a little word we should not uh, forget here. In the King James, it's must not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter his glory. In our new King James and mine here, it says ought not, same idea, the must. Very important theological consideration in that word must. Jesus would say this as well. When he was prophesying of his imminent demise, the Son of Man must be delivered to the scribes and Pharisees, and, and this, he says, is according to the appointment of God. And that's the, th- the first thing here that we learn. There's this Jesus who's being Christological as only he can be in expounding all of this, the word of God, of himself. And he is speaking also of the Father, of the decree of God. These things must happen. There is an eternal will of God that's being executed here. God is doing on Calvary and in the resurrection all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1 verse 11. And so we need with Christology the theology proper, how Jesus is the revelation of God and of the must of God. This amazing uh, determination before the foundations of the world. You see, the cro- in this we find the crucifixion and even the resurrection is not some reaction of God. It's an action of God. It's not a vassal and a servant in the fiefdom of Satan who's moving here at Satan's will. God is the mover and the shaker and the salvation maker. The must of the decree, the must of the word of God, the must because God is holy and sin must be satisfied. That's why there's a crucifixion. The must of the sinfulness of man, the must of the heart of God. It's all revealed here in the Bible and certainly is fulfilled in Jesus who is the truth of God and he would expound the truth of God. What a sermon that must have been. If you wouldn't rather hear Jesus speak than I, I would, and I'd hope you'd be with me. What an amazing sermon that must have been. No wonder they wanted him to stay. I would have wished that it said, and he preached two or three nights here without stopping. So at the end of Long sermon complaints. I'm speaking here to honor this great sermon maker. What amazing wisdom he must have shown. But then he had a heart. That's why he spoke to the heart there. And the two travelers, after he left, they said one to another, verse 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? while he opened the scriptures to us. The heart of Jesus in the word, in the heart of Jesus 
speaking to them so that they got the heart of God somehow. They knew something of the love, the compassion, the the amazing power of the piercing word of God. And, And their sins put them to shame. Their unbelief was a rebuke and Then Jesus himself rebuked them. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken of Christ. So on. That's what preachers have to do. To get to the hearts of the people in his own heart. Rebuke the people. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. Right here. Adulterers and adulteresses, James says. Mincing no words, not dancing around the truth and saying, here's the theology and here's everything else and say, now go home. Here's the theology, here's God, here's the cross. Repent, you sinners, and believe. This is the call to all of us today in our traveling. And repent even of your sadness which sadness is legitimate, of course, and necessary in our grief in this nasty now and now, but a sadness of confusion is never good. It leads to depression and despair. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This kind of sadness would never have led to confession, uh, repentance but to unbelief, and that was not good. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. And then he opens the scriptures to them, and while he's at it, he opens them to the scriptures. That's what the Bible does and Jesus does, and that's even what the preacher does. That is, Jesus through the preacher. He opens up not only the scriptures, but you. Are you being opened up, beloved? And are you seeing also your servant in him? I seeing your servant opened up and exposed to the truth about himself and the need of the Savior. At the same time, their faith was built. Their hope was kindled. They were enlightened to know the truth. Their hearts burned. Their eyes were opened to know the stranger of Jerusalem. Jesus No stranger to them anymore, but their friend and their savior. That leads to this. Find it significant that these two Emmaus men, first thing they did after they talked and their conversation now was, was healthy. They weren't digging a hole. They were pointing each other to Jesus. They were amazed together. That's a beautiful thing to be, you know, with your wife, your spouse, your friend, your wife-to-be. Be amazed together at Jesus. And then you're not dismayed together at everything else that happens and goes wrong. And you're happy. You're happy. You're happy. First thing they do who have heard from the risen Savior is rise up. Isn't that great? Verse 33, so they rose up. If Jesus rose up, we're going to rise up. I know that's stretching the grammar here. It doesn't mean they had a resurrection. But we're digging deep here. In their souls was a resurrection. In their heart, there was this burning. And they were moved 
It was a soul quake. And they were born again, begotten again, to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hallelujah. And they rose up and they were never the same and they were happy. They were happy. They were happy. And they were happy to return to Jerusalem. Vacation's over. Plans are changed. We're going to go back there. The scene of the ignominy and the shame and the reproach. We're not going to be afraid of it. We're not going to be afraid of the disciples and, and the other disciples, the apostles. We're going to join them. And they would then wait with the disciples for their marching orders and the Holy Spirit to be poured out to guide and empower them together. There's something about our walk. And if we really get the resurrection of Jesus, it's of each of us through faith. It's all of us together. So you don't go to Emmaus and I go to Long Island, New York, and whatever. We're all going to Jesus wherever we're going. We're all going to heaven wherever we're going together as a church. Following Jesus and hearing Jesus speak to us and delighting in him and encouraging him as friends on the way together. We're a happy, happy Sunday, not only, but happy days all the time when you sin, beloved. Remember, the resurrection seals the truth of the cross. You're forgiven. There is forgiveness with God. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all iniquity, every perversity, and guides us on the way so that we should go in the way of serving him. Now, these special uh, Emmaus visitees, they have a special contribution to make to the other disciples and they return there and they're apprised of the fact that the Lord had appeared to Simon. That surely confirmed them. But when they speak of the things that Jesus had spoken to them, they have a whole theology now to tell them. Hopefully they took notes. Hopefully they, they noted it in their heart and remembered what he said to them. What a theology book that would have been, but they had this theological contribution to make to the whole business of the discipleship. And now what they would say to the Messiah, uh, to, the, to the world of the Messiah, they knew the right exposition of the Bible, the only one that's right, Jesus' own expedition or um, ex expounding of the word. Amazing. And they also had a heart to go with it. So the theology was not dead. And wisdom as well. Those who were once fools. But especially they had this. They who were once very sad. They had joy. And I want to leave you with this joy, beloved. Don't you dare stand up and go your way without knowing something of the joy of Jesus risen and he is yours and lives for you. Here's a song, a song that was written once 
and still sings to me. I share it with you. He lives, he lives who once was dead. He lives my everlasting head. He lives to bless me with his love. He lives to plead for me above. He lives my hungry soul to feed. He lives in help in time of need. He lives to grant me daily breath. He lives and I shall conquer death. He lives my mansion to prepare. He lives to lead me safely there. He lives all glory to his name. He lives my Savior still the same. What joy the blessed assurance gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Happy, blessed, joyful Easter Sunday every day of your life, beloved, all the way on the journey home. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel of the risen Savior, for your visit with us today to enlighten us on these things once again, to search our hearts and to work joy. And we pray, Father, that you would so move us so that our hearts burn and continually and so that our friendships are full of conversations about the risen Savior who was crucified, but now he lives because he paid it all and he's glorified the Father in so doing and become the first fruits of them that slept and that shall sleep. What a great God. We love you. Thanks for loving us, visiting us, even when we're out of the way to bring us back a straight path to heaven. Amen.